In 2008, a new show burst onto screens and introduced audiences to the world of big eats and food challenges across America. It also made a star of its host who toured the country to discover the greatest restaurants and gamely take on the legendary eating challenges. It's such a pleasure to have him join me today. He's the regular guy with a serious appetite. Please welcome, let's talk about his life after that thing he did, Adam Richman. Adam, so good to see you today. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. Uh, I know you are a massive Anglophile and I saw on Instagram you were over here in England recently sailing our waterways. Was it a, a canal boat that you rented? No, it was uh, It was a little bit more newfangled than the, the typical narrowboat, all mod cons and all that, but... Um, it was, it, it's fun. The the locks can break your spirit after a while. So I think Norfolk broads are going to be the way I go next time because nothing spoils a day on the waterway than, you know, actually having to do boating. Um, but I, I heard that Norfolk broads, I mean, I will say this. Um, the first time I had done it was about six years ago and went from Datchet up to Reading. And this time I went um, up to Marlow and back. It's lovely and it makes me very aware of what income bracket i am in since i can't afford those magnificent homes on the thames but i had uh, a great experience and i think for a lot of people who come over to england in particular and only see london or only see anything with a w in the postcode or maybe only go to where their football club is playing and they go to Liverpool or Manchester or Stamford Bridge or wherever, um, you will miss this breathtaking expanse of God's country. And I, I, I'm just so grateful that I got to do that. So when I visit the US, I always end up bringing back quite a large selection of food. Uh, and I hear you are partial to a bag of Monster Munch. So <laughs> did you smuggle any of our British delights back home in your luggage? Yeah, unfortunately, I'm also partial to love handles. So this time <laughs> I was much more, much more perspicacious and shrewd with that which I brought back. I, um, my business manager, uh, Mark, has um, an amazing uh, woman he works with named Selena, who is English. And so I brought her back um, minstrels, revels, Maltesers, all of which I knew she missed. Um, my taste, I... I tend to abuse my credit card savagely at Fortnum and Mason. Um, I know my mom loves that stuff. My manager um, uh, had a birthday coming up, so I ordered her a hamper, which for any Americans listening to this, I don't mean a clothing receptacle. That That's a picnic basket. And so, yeah, I'm trying to think. I really, I tried to keep it a little more uh, sedate. I, I had a very bad habit of bringing back all sorts, and I'm trying to... Um, get that under wraps. I did bring back an inordinate number of microwavable sticky toffee puddings. <laughs> M&S? I did Tesco. I did one call. One had this funky name. I, I don't remember. One was like proper good puds. And I was going to initially film some kind of a segment on like trying to like give my assessment. Uh, but, you know, it's just snacking here and there and family coming over and wanting to try them. Yeah, the segment didn't happen, but the puddings did. <laughs> uh, okay, let's get down to business and enter the nostalgia zone. Ooh. 
it's easy to forget because it's timeless and Man vs. Food is on TV literally every day here in England. That's wonderful. I was watching it earlier. You were in Little Rock, Arkansas and a massive community barbecue and then ate a quadruple Hubcat burger. Yes. <laughs> but it started almost... 15 years ago and you only did it for three seasons 59 episodes and you've not actually filmed an eating challenge since 2010 so let's rewind back to the beginning okay you were a yale drama school graduate and had been a jobbing actor for five years when you heard about auditions for man versus food or pig out as it was originally called and you went through six rounds of auditions for the privilege of just to record a teaser trailer in the hope the show would get picked up but given that you had kept a meticulous food journal since 1995 of everywhere you eaten across america surely you were destined to be the perfect man for this job thank you I'm flattered that you think so. And by the way, kudos on the most prodigious research ever. Like, <laughs> I feel like, like, like I could be assassinated and you could like <laughs> fill in. Adam's, Adam's still here. I know everything about him. But bravo, bravo for sorting the wheat from the chaff. I am, um, with the exception of acknowledging how long ago it was, which makes me feel like, hello, granddad. <laughs> I feel... <laughs> I, I'm 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 very very flattered. Thank you so much, and thank you for your accuracy. You're welcome. I try. Yes, I'm not dead, nor have ever died, nor have ever had heart problems. Thank God. So, let's 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 separate the rumors from the factoids, people. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so so you must have been destined to be the perfect man for this job because, as I said, you kept this food diary. So that kind of came in handy right in your audition process when you were able to kind of like whip it out and you know I can talk about anything anywhere. Yeah, I mean, I definitely, from an HR standpoint, I advise highly against whipping anything out. <laughs> but uh, quite frankly, I, I was. It started as um, I had bought uh, a blank book to write uh, cheesy college breakup poetry after a girl broke my heart, and I used to go for drives around Atlanta. And I've never been one. Um, I, I grant you, I've really never tried to journal with any degree of regularity, but I never really found that I could do that, but chronicling an experience. And so I was at a restaurant that I had found beautiful little restaurant that sadly no longer exists. And while writing about the food, the decor, the music, the, the waitress's smile, um, the smell, the dishes, I found that in between my feelings and wherever came out in a much more organic, accessible way. And I did it. And then it became this compendium of knowledge where I had cool places to take my folks. I had cooler places to take dates than most of the other guys did. So I think that it was a little bit selfishly this um, little database, if you will, that was unique to me. But because I would imbue each entry with a bit of my own personal experience, I think I ended up remembering it better, bringing more to the table. So when Barbara Barner, the casting director for Man vs. Food, said, where do you like in the Midwest? I was able to just, it was like shooting ducks in a barrel. It was hmm. easy peasy. So in the intro to the episodes, you described yourself as having held nearly every job in the restaurant business. And you really did from the lemonade stand you set up when you were 13 to buy G.I. Joe's to being a busboy, waiter, sous chef, line cook, caterer. You even trained as a sushi chef, didn't you? Yes. And it was actually younger than 13. I think that if I were having a bar mitzvah and still like looking for GI Joes, my parents would have bigger issues. And I was about, I think I was like eight or nine. 
And yes, on the corner of Avenue U and Homecrest Avenue in Brooklyn, I had a little cardboard shop. There was a brand called Country Time Lemonade, and I had Wise, uh, you guys would say crisps, and I would sell them. And I didn't understand operating costs. So I had all this money I had made. And then my dad's like, right. And then I paid for the potato chips and the lemonade. So this is, and I was like, give me back my money. And I didn't get, (laughs) I didn't get like, no, these are your inventory and operating costs, dude. You don't just get it. This is gross. Like you only walk with the net little dude. So it was a tough lesson. And you'd think for a Jewish kid, you know, the money lessons would land hard and they did. (laughs) They did. And so Man vs. Food was an instant hit and introduced people on a mass scale to these monster food challenges you did, as well as the people that made them and highlighted some of the great communities that came together through food. But the food challenge aspect of the show wasn't actually revealed to you until pretty much the last round of auditions. And you were never a competitive food eater. But So did you ever have any kind of reservations about it or concerns about the toll it might take on your body? Um, Well, obviously, you'd be foolhardy to be cavalier and not acknowledge that mass consumption of anything. I mean, there there was a DJ, I want to say maybe a decade or so ago that had encouraged listeners to drink excessive amounts of water. And even that can be extraordinarily harmful in great quantities. So you'd be a fool to think I'm having lots of saturated fats or um, processed flowers or whatever, that there's obviously going to be some impact. So you had to take prophylactic steps to protect yourself. In terms of the eating, you know, I knew that there was going to be this challenge aspect when we did the thing at Katz's, but quite frankly, I was so broke and Katz's deli sandwiches while being ungodly delicious are not cheap. And so someone else was paying for a cat's sandwich and I get to eat it all. Like, Oh, we're good, buddy. I'm going to find a way to eat it all. Like get in where you fit in. Like the, uh, what is they eat on the days of feasting. So you remembered on the days of fasting. Uh, so yes, I, I guess for me, I knew acutely that I would be in the path of criticism of those who only saw abject gluttony or, made some false connection between me eating buffalo wings somewhere and the pandemic of global hunger and scarcity. But people are going to do that. And people want someone to throw stones at. And I was a young, unproven, untested host. Social media really was a relatively new thing in terms of Twitter and whatever, and Vine came out while I was on television and so on. Facebook was only for people in college, and then that opened up, but uh, MySpace and what have you, but like really the immediacy and certainly the levels that we have it now with Instagram and Twitter and and TikTok and whatever, it was not that when the show began in, in late 2008. So I think that everything that came with the challenges, whether it was getting scathing indictments from people that I loved and admired on television that would suddenly turn on me to strangers saying that they hoped I died. Nothing can prepare you for this. No one tells you how to go from complete anonymity when no one knows you from a can of paint. We used to film the first 10 episodes of Man vs. Food. You know, it wasn't maybe until episode 10 when the commercials aired that people were like, oh, I think 
You know, I think that's the guy I've seen on that commercial. But generally speaking, no one tells you how to go from a thing where people you've never met don't know you to an environment where people you've never met hate you, think they know you, feel free to say these things about you. So, and I and I obviously had moments where I let myself and my collaborators down in my responses to that. And sometimes I had moments of profound growth, but it's a learning by doing thing and, and, and there's no real roadmap. Mm. I mean, it must be hard having a show that on the one hand is so popular and successful, but on the other hand, you're having to defend it all the time. Yes and no. I think by now, between uh, media training and and quite frankly, getting older. I mean, I'm 48 years old now. Man vs. Food was picked up when I was 35. And 35 is granted no spring chicken, but I think that I had a lot of growing up to do. And again, I was in the struggle. I came out of Yale in um, 2003. And I have been working pretty steadily in commercials and regional theater and small bit parts on television. But to go to an environment where you have your own show, you lead the line, you are the first name on the team sheet, as it were, and you are the, the lightning rod for the positivity and the negativity. And ultimately, it was a quote from an American basketball player named Allen Iverson that really was the most galvanizing, elucidating moment for me, which was the people that say, I love you. And the people that say, I hate you have one thing in common. None of them actually know you. And you can't allow the platitudes and the praise and flirtation to go to your head. Because if you do that, you'll easily let the hatred, the bigotry, the scathing uh, personal indictments also get to you. And um, again, you know, you can only do your best. And my best has gotten better as I have gotten older and wiser, quite frankly. And so suddenly, yeah, you were overnight, you went from being an anonymous struggling actor to becoming a household name. And I guess because <laughs> you come across as such a fun, fun, friendly guy on screen and an, and an everyday guy. Thank you. It kind of led people to maybe being over familiar with you when you happen to meet them in the street or ever. Very true. Very, very true. And that's very well put. And I think that's it's that blessing and the curse, right? That that familiarity is what make people think, you know, and it, it's never, it's not a facade. I generally, you know, I've always sort of operated under the place of, and it sounds very um, like something that my mom and her contemporaries might have stitched into a sofa pillow or on a fridge magnet, but the idea of there's no strangers, just friends you haven't met yet. And I, I really try to, when I travel, when I encounter people, when I'm in a new environment, I try to operate from that standpoint. But by the same token, people punch you in the arm, put you in headlock, slap you on the back, touch your stomach, say really, as you guys would say, bang out of order things that... Um, you would never say to someone you knew and you would generally never say to a stranger. Um, it's funny when I began, I had this wonderful publicist named Teal Kennedy, who at the time was working with like Christina Aguilera and all these, you know, marquee talents. She said, I've never had a talent that people want to touch more than you. We would go into like Warner Brothers or Paramount or whatever for a meeting and security guards would reach into the car across my manager to like yeah. grab my shoulder or punch me in the arm or give me a high five. And, you know, and it's, it's, it's a compliment, but I also am allowed to put up boundaries and people 
would take it as a real affront and see it as hauteur. But I'm like, dude, I don't want to be hugged by a stranger. I don't want to be put in a headlock or have you slap my back. So it's it's that balance because you never want to alienate a fan. You never want to alienate a potential friend. You never want to alienate someone who allows you to continue to do the very thing that made you famous in the first place. Uh, but by the same token, I dealt with a lot of depression for a long time because I would always acquiesce outwardly and inwardly. I would feel like a chump. I would feel like I allowed myself to get walked over. So it's, it's a, it's still a tightrope walk. But again, as I've gotten older, I've gotten wiser and I'll be honest. And I mean this in the bottom of my heart, the principle that guides me is gratitude is the attitude to have one fan, to have one show on air, to have one other work opportunity awaiting me, uh, is a gift. It's a privilege. And quite frankly, it's just shut the fuck up, be grateful, work hard because I couldn't afford, this sounds like a soundbite, but I couldn't afford cable till I got on cable. And when I saw that people spent a half hour with me other than 999 other channels, that's a debt of gratitude, respect that I must repay. So going back to the food challenges, all people saw was you eating massive amount of food and not seeing what was going on behind the scenes in terms of the preparation that you were doing, skipping meals before a challenge, working out in the morning, drinking lots of water to keep your stomach stretched. And then the aftermath of having to work out again straight after, doing uh -huh. flushes that your doctor prescribed, and you had habanero poisoning after one challenge. Yep. Did you ever have a moment where you thought, I can't suffer for my art anymore <laughs> several 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 and and you know at the same time you have classmates that are doing legit acting i mean it's the yell school of drama so i have you know um a, a brilliant actor named leroy mclean who actually has ties to brixton is on fabulous mrs mazel um katherine hahn who is uh, part of WandaVision and Step Brothers was a third year at Yale and she was high in the ascent. My classmate Molik Pancholi was in the cast of 30 Rock and myriad Broadway shows. So here's doing the very thing they were trained for and you almost feel like a clown, you know, to some extent. The other thing is, yeah, the challenge is done and you feel like death and you have to do this press conference. You don't want to be an ungrateful ass and not take pictures and autographs and whatever, but you don't feel well. You got to get back. My doctor was adamant about, I need you to get your heart rate elevated right away. And I need you to start this flush because we don't want like all that saturated fat to really allow a, like artery deposits and what have you. So I'll, I mean, People think that I was gallivanting around the U.S., but that was my crew. Like they would go out and hang out with like, you know, the staff and go out and, you know, meet cool people and meet girls and drink and this. And I would have a gallon of water in the hotel gym with my head on the console walking at first 1.1 miles an hour, like the Bataan Death March and just like uh, slugging this water back. But I'm here to, to have this interview with you because I did those things. But yes, I have one moment and I will try to describe this as delicately as possible. But I remember the man versus food commercials had just begun to air. I was in New Orleans, Louisiana, having just finished a 180 oyster challenge. I was in my hotel room dealing with just such gastric distress. 
about that for deaf PR. <laughs> and I am sitting there just, just feeling, you know, a swirling universe within my, my sternum. And then I can hear the commercial going, man versus food, man versus food. It's like, shut the fuck up. And it was like, it was just this careful what you wish for. You might just get it. But, you know, that was the Faustian bargain I had made. And truthfully, I suffered for it a bit, but I was smart. And as a result, a lot of independent businesses did 80 to 300% more business as a result of being on Man versus Food. And to have had some small part in that is... Uh, a legacy I am extraordinarily proud of. Because I was going to say, the thing I think the critics probably missed when they were complaining about the, the wastefulness or gluttony was that the restaurants that you were featuring, which were mostly family-run or independent businesses, all had massive boost to their business, as you say, from fans who wanted to try the food for themselves and still continue to do so this day. They have your picture on the wall or it's mentioned on the menu. I mean, definitely, I have to admit, I've eaten at a few places in the States as a direct result of watching Man vs. Food. That's wonderful. And my husband plotting out when and how we can shoehorn it into our trips. Um, <laughs> that's the way to do it. But that's that's an honour. Like to Mike Emerson, is the most lovely man and a, a pitmaster extraordinaire, and he's the proprietor of Pappy Smokehouse in St. Louis. And he sent me a message that, like, really got me all in the feels, you know, had me right in the, not the cockles, even the subcockle areas of my heart. He said, you know, I have a home in Maui now, and I can draw a direct line from you walking in the door of my restaurant to me being able to live this lifestyle. Wow. And I will always be grateful. And, like, he didn't need me. You know, I just pointed a camera at the wonderful stuff he was already doing. I couldn't, you know, I, I couldn't hold his spatula, you know, when it comes to being a, a restaurant owner, a boss of employees, uh, let alone a, a barbecue chef. And um, and I'm pretty nice with it, but he's he's the man. And he and Skip Steele built something extraordinarily special with Pappy's. They were already selling out of food regularly. I did nothing but go, hey, guys, look at this. I have to always remember my, my lodestar, my guiding principle was I'm you. So if I'm a boorish asshole, if I'm running roughshod, if I'm um, not respectful of my host, I'm the cipher for you. So I have to be warm, open, enthusiastic, ask questions and highlight them. You know, uh, to get uh, Katie Angelis, uh, was a, a really lovely waitress who was in the, she was a bartender and waitress at the Thurman Cafe in Columbus, first ever episode of the series. And she said, hey, thanks for the pay raise. Since you came here, we've been banging and banking. I went to um, Steve's Euros at the Westside Market in Cleveland, and they're like, we love you, but we hate you. I said, what do you mean? They're like, our business has been crazy, but we don't get the breaks we used to. We don't get the time off we used to. But, you know, that's a good problem to have. And so I, I think, look, the challenges are inherently going to be a hook. They are going to be spectacle. They are going to be polarizing. And I know many people, like, uh, very often the female audience would watch for the first few acts of the show and turn it off for the challenges uh, and and the men would really be there. But then you'd have other communities where the women were in it through and through. And the guys found that off-putting. 
So what I think was really quite remarkable was it had to do with your own personal relationship with food and consumption, your own desire to see whether or not I could do it, and then other people wondering, using me as a litmus test for their own ability, like, he ain't nothing, he's just, you know, Fred Savage looking Jew from Brooklyn, I bet I could eat that too. (laughs) So, you know, and either way, either way, you're watching the show. So in terms of the impact of the show, it's, of course, spawned a lot of YouTubers who do eating challenges now um, or front food guides. And as someone who's a culinary anthropologist, Mm -hmm. spent 15 years presenting food shows and having worked all the jobs in the industry, what do you think of YouTubers or influencers who are making quite a lot of money when they probably don't have the knowledge or experience you do? They're obviously smarter than me to be making that money. They're richer than me. You know, one of the things I've been friends with certain YouTube food people, Andrew Ray from Binging with Babish, Mikey Chen from Strictly Dumpling. And I was talking with Mikey and I said, you know, YouTube was fairly new in 08. I had the number one food show on a network. Why in God's name did I not film vlogs and just throw them up there? Because simply by the fact that they were up in 08 and they had my name attached, they could have been... Getting, You'd be a millionaire. Yes. Yeah, so whether or not they have my knowledge, they had, I guess, more savvy and more initiative because now I'm playing catch up and where I was doing something that was, you know, we, we landed on that space first within food challenges and peripatetic food exploration. Um, I mean, Guy Fieri was obviously uh, doing the foods of the people with uh, Triple D, but I think I had a different voice than him, a different appeal than he did. I think the challenges, again, it's, you know, you look at my buddy Sean Evans with Hot Ones, for example. It's a clean concept. It's a great hook. And everyone knows what it is. You can pitch it in one sentence, you know. Celebrities try wings that get hotter as questions get more incisive, you know. And Sean, much like you, is a wonderful interviewer this copious amounts of research and there's a hook so now when i jump back into the fray and now i'm slowly populating my youtube channel with stuff it's a tremendous amount of work and the competition like how does anyone who is now 14 who really didn't grow up with man versus food gonna give a shit about me when there's mr beast yeah sure he he doesn't really cook and he's got ghost kitchens making his foods and all these things, but he's got the audience. You know, I remember how much it hurt me that the kind of snooty foodie sector didn't respect me, invalidated what I did, marginalized or maligned what I did, and it hurt. And I think that there's enough of an audience and enough money out there for us all to make a living. And I will never... I'll never, ever take any. I I may not be into their show, but I will never say that they have no right, that they have no basis. It's not for me to gatekeep. And it's not for my own personal peccadillos to influence what is out there. And I I remember um, Travel Channel had a show on for a brief time called Food Wars, where um, they would take like the number, like the two most popular Italian beef places in Chicago and then have people judge like which was best and they offered it to me and I wouldn't do it because I never wanted to be part of 
one business failing or one business seen as inferior to its competitor. It's just not me. I came from restaurants. I know how hard it is. I know how shitty the margins are when you're an owner. And I just think it's just not. I got enough things fettering my soul with karma. I don't need to. I don't need to do that too. <laughs> um, personal question. I don't know if I'm the only one that has this because when I mention it to other people, they have no idea what I'm talking about. But do you get jawgasms? Oh, I'm going to ask for a definition on that. When you eat something and at the first bite, your jaw goes into spasm. Like I usually get it when if I've not eaten anything for a while. And then the first bite that I take, literally, it's like this massive jaw spasm, but it in a weird way feels good at the same time. Do you not do you not get that? Am I the only one? <laughs> I I I mean I've had like the sort of food gasm moment where you eat something that is so flipping good, you like it's transcendent. Like I remember having my director, uh, Tony, my sound guy Eric, and I went to a restaurant in Dallas where they had these um this breathtaking ribeye and they had some kind of herb butter. And then the owner said, uh, bring Adam and Tony a ramekin of our ancho chocolate ice cream. And I was like, huh? And the guy says, put that on the tines of your fork, then put a little of the compound butter, then cut into the ribeye. And only one or two times in my life, and there's no hyperbole in this statement, but I ate this and the hair on the back of my neck stood up. And there's only been like, a handful of times where I've eaten something that was just that level of transcendent. I didn't necessarily feel it in my jaw. I, I certainly felt it in my loins. <laughs> Clearly, I'm just a freak and I'm the only one that has jawgasms. I don't no, know. No, <laughs> let, let your freak flag fly. Let anybody judge you. No, no, no. Listen, if they don't, if they don't want you at your Kelly Rowland, they don't deserve you at your Beyonce. <laughs> It's time to leave the nostalgia zone and enter what I like to call the latted zone, otherwise known as life after that thing I did. So after three seasons of Man vs. Food, you returned with Man vs. Food Nation, which saw locals take on food challenges instead of you. And the rumour at the time was that you stopped because you were concerned for your health and weight gain. But that wasn't actually true, was it? Nonsense. In fact... I gained more weight doing Man vs. Food Nation than I did doing Man vs. Food because I didn't have or need the discipline that I did while doing the food challenges. And that's a point of fact. The, the simple fact was they wanted to keep the concept going. I began to feel like a one-trick pony because quite simply it was restaurant, restaurant, hot or large. Restaurant, restaurant, hot or large. That's And then occasionally there would be something like the decathlon or the pentathlon or whatever it is but generally speaking that's what it was i didn't want to wait around and overstay my welcome and the truth is everywhere and i mean everywhere i went virtually or otherwise you should have my dad on you should have my brother on my sister my wife everywhere and and the if you watch every episode of man versus food in the opening in the cold open the restaurant owner would say 117 people have tried it, but only three have won or whatever the the statistic is. So it's hard not to feel like you're a carpet bagging a victory. Like you come in with your bells and whistles and cameras and bullshit and you invalidate the locals who put this challenge on the map. How am I going to find out in a production office in New York City 
about a food challenge in Springfield, Illinois, if hundreds of people haven't tried it. So I've done my story. Let me show other people's story. In hindsight, as well-intentioned as that may have been, and as much as we wanted to open it up, because I think that there was inherently we wanted to do something aspirational where people could feel they could be on the show um, and and give them a – and there was also a little bit of an FU to everyone's like, bitch, I could have done that. Cool. Do it. Do it, tough guy. You know what I mean? And um, in hindsight, though, ultimately it just served to highlight the fact that I was no longer doing challenges, which sadly left uh, left it open for speculation, conjecture, horrible rumors about me, my health, and so on. But the truth of the matter is, after a while, you know, it's like American baseball. We've seen all your pitches. We know what you're going to throw. So it was time for a change. And in a very short space of time after, I think, like over a three or four year period, you fronted a string of shows, uh, Amazing Eats, Best Sandwich in America, Fandemonium, Man Finds Food, or Slash Secret Eats, as it then became known, mm-hmm. uh, Food Fighters, Barbecue Champ here in the UK. Yep. And you released two books, including your first cookbook. That must have been exhausting not least a massive challenge to come up with over a hundred recipes people are gonna like are not pretentious and people can actually afford to make yeah absolutely without question or pause well i'm a child of a single parent family i mean i have i had a great dad he passed when i was 23 i have a great stepmom that i still have a good relationship with and my mother is unequivocally my hero and i i said multiple times that my life is a love letter to her she's you know even if she weren't my mom i would i, I would be honored enough just to know her quite frankly. Um, so she rubbed two nickels together to make a dollar my whole life. And it would be disingenuous of me to put out something so unduly erudite and effete and where the barrier to entry was so high and so obscure and inaccessible that I like being the people's champ. You know, I, I, in the beginning, of course, you know, you want to be liked by the elite, the movers, the shakers, and then you realize you have a lane, you have um, an appeal, and it may not be the one you maybe initially thought you might have, but it's the one you have, and you must embrace that. So it exhausting without, I remember my first book, because I didn't use a ghostwriter for any of it. Um, I wrote that while on the road and that was grueling because we would film for 12 hours. I'd come back, I'd work out, I'd shower, put on, you know, some sweats and a t-shirt right till almost two, go and then be up at like seven in the morning and do it all over again. And the thing is writing a book is not easy. Editing a book is not easy. Trying to make something that has its own distinct voice is not easy. And you're not, you're never going to please everyone. And, um, But again, to have had the opportunity to pivot and pivot and pivot. And like since like I'm an Anglophile, I'm a quarter English myself. My great granddad's from Leeds and and my grandmother grew up, uh, you know, with that in her life and and had a bit of a Leeds background. You you fall in love with a culture, a country, an accent, a pop culture, a zeitgeist. And then to be part of it was such an honor to live in England was such an honor but also to have the ability to i mean network executives got where they are because they're smart people so then to be able to come up with a new salient concept and say look hidden restaurants off menu dishes the best sandwich i mean 
how things got edited and how things got changed, I may not be so psyched about in the process. And that's going to happen with collaborative art like television. But um, the memories I have, the friendships I made, you know, Mark Blatchford and Mylene Klass, who were, you know, the host and uh, the like, co-judge uh, on ITV's Barbecue Champ, the fact that I got to work for ITV, the fact that I got to live in Hampshire, the fact that I got to see Sussex and Surrey and go to Camden for the first time, all of these things. And now I was filming, I was living in Camden just before the pandemic, um, filming something for the Dave channel. And again, that to me was a dream. Walking to Tesco's. <laughs> most people don't think walking to Tesco's is a dream. <laughs> right, right. As I'm sure most Americans would say going to ShopRite or going to Key Food is not a dream either. But the thing is, I find a sense of wonder going to a news agent's. I find a sense of wonder having great conversations with a black cab driver or seeing some of the live art that I've seen at the Barbican or walking around Seven Dials and people watching. I just think... If you love a culture that you're not part of, I embrace every every aspect of it. And I think that if you can do that, when you can find something where the most minute detail fills you with awe and joy and inspiration, like, go for it, man. Life's too fucking short not to. So now we come to 2014 and three significant things happened that year, which are all related. Mm-hmm. First, you posed naked for Cosmopolitan with just a football to cover your modesty. Man versus nude were the headlines, if I recall, uh, and sent many hearts a flutter. Uh, and you were promoting male cancer awareness and also celebrating the achievement of your £70 weight loss, which you did for the second significant thing that year, which was playing in Soccer Aid, which we will return to in a second to talk about. But the third thing was an incident which almost derailed your whole career over an Instagram post where you were celebrating your weight loss and then got into a, a war of words, shall we say, yeah. with some commenters. And I won't go into all the details because it was well reported, but it was something that cost you professionally, financially, personally. You went mm-hmm. into a depression after and disappeared for a few years. But what was the biggest lesson you learned from it? Don't take the bait, number one. Number two... When you are in the public eye, reactionary behavior is not only foolhardy, it's dangerous, as we've seen with Will Smith recently. Number three, when other people's livelihoods and incomes are dependent upon you, there's a line in Hamlet that Polonius says to Ophelia, and it's very fitting when it comes to the way someone not on television or not in the public eye can react versus the way someone who is. And the line is, with a larger tether may he walk than may be given you. But at the end of the day, um, no matter what was said, as an adult, that he started it, just doesn't hold water and i i think i grew up a bit i think i was probably quite frankly a bit cavalier i probably was a bit entitled i probably was a bit i mean here i was i was 
in the best shape of my life, more confident than I had ever been. I was making a really good living. I had more things down the pike that I was going to record. Played on the pitch at Old Trafford. I could now count, you know, some A-list celebrities as true friends and collaborators. And yet, in a moment, letting that momentary immediate gratification of saying something ugly to someone who said something ugly to you, um, I had let that foolish, almost lizard brain, juvenile, macho bullshit response override my intelligence the couth decorum and uh humanity that my mother and my stepmother and my father worked so hard to imbue how my manager and my agents had worked so hard to get me to these places but while everybody wanted me crucified and i got death threats i got all the sensationalistic media covering me i mean look it's 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 2022 and we're still talking about it but while everybody wanted to crucify me, um, people forget all the restaurants that we were scheduled to film with, they lost coverage. All my camera people who had turned down other jobs because they thought that they had a year's worth of work, or year and a half's worth of work, they, they lost that work. My production assistants, my editors, whatever, they all lost work they all lost income they all lost opportunities now i accept full responsibility for my actions and again you know with a larger tether may others walk that may be given me and as much as i may want to tell someone you know i think i'm i'm pretty good with words and I'm good with words to my detriment when I want to say something scathing and cutting, and it has appeared at times with family, with in relationships. You can't take that shit back, and you do it in print, and you do it in a public eye, and certain words and certain things are just no-fly zones. And the other thing is you have to tie it back to what people know you for. So if I ha- if I were a shock jock, comedian or if i were a abrasive athlete or that was part of my shtick i could have gotten away with it but it was so incongruous with who i am and certainly what i was known for and unfortunately came at such a turning point in our sensitivities uh, such a turning point in terms of social media and a slow news time people who were out to hurt me hurt a lot more people in the process and looking back now at what I said and did versus what has come afterwards, what I did was a drop in the bucket and the sensitivities have, have certainly changed. But at the end of the day, you just, if you're gifted an opportunity to do this, you have to hold it like this. You have to hold it like a, an egg so gently and respect it and love it and nurture it and fan that spark. And you have to realize, yeah, okay, Joe Schmo, who disagrees with my opinion on Tottenham, on politics, on a woman's right to choose, they can say the most vile, disgusting thing. And if I retaliate on par, I'm the one who gets killed. And, and, 
I had to stop and acknowledge the old aphorism is true. When you wrestle with a pig, you both get dirty, but the pig likes it. And my late father, may receive less in peace, he used to say, when you're having an argument with an asshole, make sure they're not doing the same thing. And I lost sight of that. I lost sight of that because I felt empowered and invincible and cocky and didn't think before I acted. And I took the bait. And so now I think I just move forward with a much better relationship with social media, much greater awareness of that I represent something larger than myself, and that social media is ultimately a tool to gauge your audience's barometer, to build a following, to try new content out. But it can't be a conversation because you'll say stupid shit in the conversation. And in my position, you can't afford to say stupid shit in the conversation. Will Smith can't unslap Chris Rock. That's out there. I can't unsay, you know, these horrible things, but I can learn from it, make sure it never happens again. And though I know there will always be these, you know, pathetic bastards that have all, will always try to say something and egg you on and try to get your goat and to elicit a rise out of you. You have to just sort of woosah that and you have to have the self-mastery to go, I can't. I, I, I want to get back at this piece of garbage so badly. And you can't because with a larger tether, may they walk than maybe given me. I think we kind of take for granted as the average Joe public that it must be hard as a celebrity that you can never really afford the luxury of, a, of ever having a bad day because someone's going to be watching. You always have to be smiling for that selfie someone wants to take with you when you might not be feeling that happy or smiley and, and you have to ignore the trolls. Yeah. When the normal reaction would be to say something back or, or defend yourself and always be gracious and patient. When that happened... Uh... This guy like sent me this horrible direct message. You deserve to lose everything, you piece of shit, and this, that, and the other, and terrible things. And I guess apparently I was at an airport, and his kid wanted a picture with me, and I just sort of walked away. And now a friend of mine had passed, and I was going to get away, and I was really in a in a really bad headspace. Uh, because it was someone that was relatively young and it was relatively sudden and I was just, I, I didn't want to be Adam from Man vs. Food, which is stupid, right? Like, I'm always going to be that. And I work because of that. And in that moment, I just, um, I, I remember like, you know, going into the airport bathroom and crying and just sort of, you know, flying the whole time with my head in my hands. Of course, I feel bad I didn't take a picture with that kid in hindsight. But does that mean I, quote unquote, deserve to lose everything? Like, mm. I think that there's an, and I'm not a parent. I understand you want your child to be happy, but there are some people that will just be ugly and you just have to accept that. You just got to go where the love is. And so on to football, something uh, much more positive. Uh, you are a big lover of the British game, um, which we will also talk a bit more about in a second. But said you participated in Soccer Aid for UNICEF and the team you were on that year was brilliant. You had James McAvoy, Jeremy Renner, Sam Worthington, Michael Sheen, Gordon Ramsay. But unfortunately, you didn't get to touch the ball because five minutes after you got on the pitch, Jose Mourinho subbed you off. Yep. Well, I mean, I, and I, you know, it was a couple of things. One, I picked up a pretty bad knock in training. I tore my left calf. Um, and also, I want to be quite honest. 
And I have been playing for Hollywood United, been doing two-a-day practices with a professional coach who himself had been a pro and now coaches Divac Origi and was coaching Stephen Ireland and was coaching Solomon Kalu and has coached Sané and um, Romelu Lukaku for a while. And I played. I played for seven years in my youth. But I will tell you, in no uncertain terms, I was all nerves. I was shit in training. So Mourinho... Uh, was already hesitant to put me on. But once we went behind, when they gave up that penalty and Kevin Phillips, who had literally just finished playing in the Premier League, like he had just finished, he was a Premier League striker. And just like they throw him in against, you know, the guy from Man versus Food. You know what I mean? (laughs) So obviously Mourinho is a winner and he won the best players on the pitch. And James McAvoy is better than me. But you know what? The journey was awesome. I got to meet Des Walker and I got to meet Matt Letissier and Stephen Moyer and the guys from McFly and Dominic Cooper and, you know, Jamie Carragher and Vandersar and Seaman and these amazing athletes. And the, and the, the, the pitch at Old Trafford feels like a pillow. And, 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 and you walk into the changing room at Fulham where we trained. And my friend Clint Dempsey, whose photo is actually right here over my shoulder, um, you know, I'm in, I'm in the Fulham practice changing room. And there's literally, like, our kits. Are, and it says, Vandersar, Richmond, Davids. And you're going, one of these kids is not like the other. <laughs> And I was I was good in training. Then after I picked up the knock, I was I was a liability, and I was also nervous, you know. And I think that Mourinho read that too. And you have to have supreme confidence. But it's it's five minutes. I mean, whatever, three and a half minutes. I think it's probably more like it on the pitch. But at the end of the day, um, the journey of of having that privilege to move to LA, have the ball at my feet a few times a day play games with Hollywood United on the weekends, meet Martin Comston and Jeremy Renner and Michael Sheen and Gordon Ramsay and Alessandro Del Piero and Clarence Sato. I mean, I fell in love with the game again because of the 98 World Cup, and now I'm basically on the pitch with half of the Dutch team. I mean, it's Seydorf and Van der Sar and, and Edgar Davids and Jaap Stam and... These are men that have achieved history. And what was remarkable was they were more kind and patient than my gaffer was. <laughs> and uh, so it was um, it was great. It was too short, but uh, we won. And if if me being on the pitch would have prevented a team win, I'm glad to have been subbed because at least – that's what motivated my weight loss from 2012 to 2014 with Soccer Aid. I, I would work out in football kits. I would watch the old matches on my iPad while running. Um, and it sounds really cheesy, but for that one, the journey was the reward. You're a big Spurs supporter. Just got their motto tattooed on my wrist. As you say, you've got you've got the club motto tattooed on your wrist. Um, I'm from a family of Spurs supporters. Clearly brought that up in the proper manner. <laughs> my brother, also called Adam. Uh, my dad, who grew up in Tottenham. My uncle and two cousins have season tickets. Uh, but you have um, also thrown your support behind two smaller British football teams. Oh. You sponsor Sunday League, Broadly FC, and pay for their pitch fees 
goodies and new kits and equipment. And you're also a Grimsby Town shareholder. So Correct. what was it about those two teams that spoke to you? I met a guy on uh, my Virgin flight back to the States after my very first press junket. We were just chatting and I said, oh, I have to make a trade on my fantasy football team. And he said, American football to proper football. <laughs> and I said, well, as you would say, proper football. I was in the UK Telegraph Celebrity Fantasy League. And um, I said, who do you support? And so he said, you probably never heard of this team. It's called Grimsby Town. And he began to tell me a little bit about the town itself, the highs, the lows. I just sort of became really enamored of his description of how this town and like local business that had like sort of leveraged every penny they could to sponsor it and how this was this maritime community with, you know, their identity that they were the mariners of Grimsby town. I, I don't know. There was just something kind of like plucky and Brooklyn Dodger underdoggy that I really loved. I love the story of um, Ivano Benetti, this wonderful Italian striker getting his nose broken by the manager when he threw a plate of chicken wings at him because he thought he had a <laughs> bad work rate against Luton town. I loved what I read about the town and Steele's Fish and Chips, this this legendary fish and chip shop. Um, how I, I don't know that they, they I don't know if you were aware a couple of years back they did something called Operation Promotion, where people in the town all gave up their own money to give the club better players. <laughs> so they can get better players. Exactly right. And so I think that that kind of grassroots story speaks to everyone, regardless of nationality, regardless of their involvement in the game, playing the game. Yeah, I just loved it. And broadly, FC, um, Matt Newton, uh, who was friends with Richard Broadley, wrote me the most warm, articulate, heartfelt, funny message on Facebook. And my cousin Blake at the time was fighting non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. So when he wrote to me about Richard's passing to a bloodborne cancer and that they were going to raise money for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society and now Bloodwise UK. And at the time, they were only looking for someone to help them with their trackies. And I've always wanted to see my production company logo on a kit. And there was miscommunication. I was like, wait a minute, I just gave you this much money. Where the fuck's my logo? <laughs> I don't want to seem like Gandhi. There was a fair amount of hubris in this shit. <laughs> and I, I, uh, so yeah, that started my relationship with Broadly that I have continued and with Grimsby when they had a rough time during the pandemic and they had some shares available. It's sort of like you really have a dog in the fight. And to know that the game that was the deciding factor was against Ryan Reynolds and, uh, Rexham. And yeah, and Rob McElhenney's Wrexham, and we wrecked them, and we got it back <laughs> into the league. I mean, it's just, it's, I love those Cinderella stories. It's hard not to love those Cinderella stories. And I think that that's real special. And to know that, you know, Broadley's doing something for a fallen friend to exalt his name and his love. And there's a picture of him in the stands right where he sat. Um, it's real special. I got to go to Blundell Park. I got to be on the pitch. I got to be in the changing room. I got to um, meet some of the wonderful people who work for the club. And that's football too, and no less vital, vibrant, and necessary to the growth of the beautiful game 
as the people at Tottenham Hotspur, Stamford Bridge, Anfield, and so on. So um, you also went back to your theatre roots about eight years ago uh, when you co-produced a play, Stalking the Bogeyman, based on the true story of journalist David Holthouse's experience of childhood sexual abuse, which played in both New York and here in London, mm-hmm. uh, two great reviews. Uh, but it was something that you got involved with because you're a supporter and spokesperson for Rain, which is a, a US charity that helps sexual abuse survivors. And I'm sure as a celebrity, you must get approached by charities all the time and it's hard to pick and choose. But why did you feel passionate about supporting Rain? This is a true story. So I was filming um, an episode of Man vs. Food in Milwaukee. Uh, I think it was actually Man vs. Food Nation, as I think about it. But I was in Milwaukee in my trailer, and the Jerry Sandusky affidavit was released. For those listening who may be unaware, Jerry Sandusky was a football coach at, like, this is one of the head assistants uh, at Penn State. And he uh, was a vile man who, I mean, kind of in the Jimmy Savile model, because of his role connected to football, had access to different youth organizations and whatever. And he was... Uh, sexually abusing and raping children, uh, sometimes on the grounds of the Penn State football facilities. And um, I read the affidavit, my blood boiled. I initially started, like everyone else, hurling vitriol out into the ether, saying the most... Because there was also reports of this one asshole who was uh, also an assistant coach who walked in when it happened and and left and didn't help didn't stop it and and my blood was boiling and it was just all this hurling invective hurling invective and then I stopped and I looked at the timeline and it's all it was was just people throwing poison and I just had this moment and this is the God's honest truth I was like I could be one more voice of anger or I could try to actually change the status quo and prevent it from ever happening again. And I just said to people, all the, the, the shit I'm spewing and the, the violent revenge fantasies and these scathing words and blah, 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 aren't doing shit. And I just said, who's doing shit? And someone had turned me on to rain in my timeline. I reached out. I, so I, what I did was I actually just made a contribution. I didn't publicize that I had made a contribution, but I contributed $10,000. And I, I said, I wish I lived in a world where organizations like rain didn't have to exist. But since I do, I'm glad you do. And this is to support the work you do. And then, um, Scott, it was the president of rain. um, reached uh, out to me and we began our relationship and it's odd how pervasive it is. And it's odd how many people and uh, a girlfriend, and I I mean a a girl who was a friend, not a girlfriend, I want to make this clear, um, had revealed that in college she was a victim of sexual assault. And so I think you realize how pervasive it it is and you realize how often it's underreported, unreported, reported, but not acted upon. And then you read about that there's like half million untested rape kits, half million people waiting for justice, for closure, for, you know, and no one was doing something about it but rain. And now there's the Joyful Heart Foundation and stuff. So I did that. And then, yes, 
theater has that way of, of evoking that heartstring. The director and co-writer was my former roommate, a brilliant Columbia University graduate named Marcus Potter, who is now a teacher and a professor. But he had turned me on to it. He sent me the NPR thing that initially had turned him on to David Holthouse's case. And to see how many people would come up to David after the show, come up to us after the show, would write to the website that there were outreaches done connected to the show. We ended up having mental health people uh, with us at certain times when we would tour Alaska and things like that. And we've actually just made uh, Stalking the Boogeyman into a short film with Santino Fontana from the cast of Frozen and Thomas Sadowski, a brilliant actor, is married to Amanda Seyfried. Uh, um, It's a two-hander short film. But again, it's a true story. A true story of a guy that is, you know, a big man, a vital man, a strong man, and it shows it can happen in the most unlikely of places. And you have a voice, you have a right to be heard. There are those who are willing to tell your story. And um, in our credits, we even include resources that you can avail yourself of. So, the last few shows you've made for the History Channel, The Food That Built America although it's called The Food That Built the World here in the UK. Um, Is that right? Yeah. Love it. <laughs> History Channel rebranded it <laughs> to, to the world here. Right. Kind of like the uh, World Series of Baseball, right, where only America competes and not the world. But um, <laughs> well, We have teams in Toronto. <laughs> Still not the world. Um, Modern Marvels. I get it, I get it. <laughs> Modern Marvels annual winter <laughs> series, Adam Eats the 80s, which tells the origin stories of iconic foods of the decade. They've all been really solid, factual documentary series and i've read comments about you where people say that they're surprised at how intelligent you are how how articulate you are how sad is that what a backhanded no that's that's exactly it like that's the truth and people don't realize how insulting that is like i made a comment and i'm only recently setting up this office but i had said like the things that i display i have i'm looking at it right there that there is a, a box and of all the stuff i've gotten from kids Pictures of me, pictures of me eating, things that they, like notes they wrote me. And I said, that's what I had at my office. And the guy's like, no offense, dude, but why do you have an office? And it's like, like I produced like nine television shows, wrote two books. I'm on the board of an acting school. Like, the fuck are you talking about? Why do I have an office? Like, why does, you know, uh, anyone have an office in their home? That's where you work. And, but like, that's the idea. I mean, I, look, yes, thank you to everyone who found me enlightening, entertaining. That's, tremendously flattering but for people for whom it's a surprise that i'm not you know some troglodyte barely able to wipe my own ass dude and that therein lies the rub therein lies one of the reasons i wanted to move on from man versus food not because i didn't love it not because i didn't realize how lucky i was to have a show people loved not how not because i was ungrateful or because i thought i was better than it or better than the people who liked it but it's important to show people that there's very much someone in residence here. This isn't just a hat holder. You know what I'm saying? No, but it's I'm I'm so grateful to the response. And I think, you know, someone said, you know, I, they just said, oh, I saw the show. I go, did you like it? And they're like, yeah, yeah. You uh, you said all the stuff that they uh, prepared for you very convincingly. I'm like, no one prepared shit for me, dude. <laughs> they told me the subject matter. Then I do the research. They ask questions and it's incumbent upon me to be informative and entertaining. That's it. They don't go, now, Adam, say something about how Colonel Pabst was, no, shut the fuck up. That's not what we do. 
two quick questions before we end. Do you think you'll ever return to acting? Maybe a West End play? I know you're partial to a bit of Shakespeare. Or maybe with your love of hip hop, maybe you could swing a part in Hamilton. I, well, first of all, I would love to. I actually had to ask my manager, could I audition? She said, listen, if you just wanted to put work up in front of Lin-Manuel, that'd be great. But um, you are, what's the word, white? <laughs> and part of the beauty of Hamilton is that it's inclusive. As Lynn said, I wanted the people that took the A train down to the theater to see a, a cast that reflected the people they just saw on the A train. And I think it must be incredibly empowering for a person of color to see another person of color playing George Washington, playing Marquis de Lafayette, playing Eliza, playing, you know, uh, Hamilton himself. And I think if it inspires one more person for whom the theater or American history has been inaccessible, then all the better for it. Um, in terms of Shakespeare, I would love to do it. I miss speaking the speech more than you can possibly know. I finally got to see my first West End play on this trip. I got to see the brilliant Mark Rylance and Mackenzie Crook in Jerusalem, which I had missed in New York. Uh, so I would love to. And um, an opportunity, it sadly didn't sync up because my, my next project, I'm doing a podcast with Complex Media and First We Feast called The Dishes That Built Me, which I'm about to start recording. Um, but... I would love that opportunity. And again, it's it's a nice chance to show people you could be a little bit of a Swiss Army knife, that you're not just this, you're also this, you know? And I've begun to learn how to customize sneakers. I've been learning how to make digital music. And I had just started DJing just before the pandemic. I did my first gig in Miami. Um, I've actually recently begun trying my hand at writing country songs. I, I can't write the music, but writing the lyrics because my father, may he rest in peace, was a big country music fan. So I think that it's never too late to be what you might have been. And if, listen, any theater producers are listening and you're like, I have a part that'd be great for someone who looks like a better looking Jay Leno, but a way worse looking Fred Savage. <laughs> you know what I mean? Call me up. I, that's that's the thing that I love about what I get to do. That because I'm a little bit this undefinable thing who loses weight and gains weight, who who ate a bunch of food and now profiles food, who does shows about food and football with Facebook and then does stuff about celebrities' final meals on planet Earth with, with Dave, uh, customizing sneakers and DJing and country music and cookbooks, is that it puts me in the path of the people I admire and love. And not all of them are famous, quote unquote, but they're all wonderful and everyone's got a story to tell. And if you're listening to this, I want to meet you. I want to learn your story. And I'm just so blessed to live the life I've lived and uh, to, to meet the people I've met. And uh, if I have any regret, it's that my dad's not here to, to join me on the journey, but my mom is and she's my hero. My stepmom's around. So, um, and thank you to everyone who's, who's, uh, allowed a really hardworking kid from Brooklyn who didn't come from shit to achieve some dreams and uh, hopefully make your lives a little bit happier with some of the stuff I do. Last question. You have a proper foodie's kitchen. Please tell me more about your cupboard filled with salts from around the world. <laughs> How many do you have? And is there one that only comes out for special occasions? Oh my God, I love you so much, mate. Like, honestly, any young people listening to this this is your model for research. This this is 
If you want to do any type of chat show, or someone on a network, give this woman a show because I want to see her go, Harrison Ford, you had a hangnail when you were 17 years old. <laughs> so, you know, tell me more. You know what I mean? Tell me more about that time you farted in church. <laughs> so, God damn, you're awesome. Uh, so I get a lot of grief from uh, significant others or my mom alike in terms of like, dude, you don't need this many salts. I would say upwards of 10. Well, first of all, because Hawaii is my favorite place on earth and they have myriad. Oh, I've got great salt with Hawaii. Right. So there's, there's um, kiave, which is type of wood, kiave smoked salt. There's pink salts. There's black or sulfurous salts, green salts. And they do have different characteristics and they're really fun to like line a margarita glass with. But I also have, there's a company called Jacobson's and they do a truffle salt, a garlic salt. Um, I think like just truffle is such a big flavor. That's the one that I try to be a little more like careful with. But you know, everybody's favorite is one from Blighty itself. It's it's Malden salt. So uh, big, beautiful crystals and crunchy and not too high in sodium. So I have a lot. I have I have far too many barbecue sauces and I and, uh, far too many hot sauces. But shout out to the amazing Mark Chavo, the rib man. Uh, if anyone follows him, who is known for his iconic sauce, holy fuck, we're actually working on a collaboration, rich man, rib man, uh, something or other. But yes, I, I am far too much of a pack rat, far too much of a collector and I am working on it, but the salts stay. (laughs) (laughs) Adam, it's been brilliant talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Um, I know you mentioned before there was Supperman, the show that you were working on with Dave that got scuppered a bit by the pandemic. So I hope we see you back on these shores soon and on screen. From your lips to God's ears. You listening, E1? Are you listening? I love y'all. Let's get this going. You're the best. Thank you so much. Massive thanks again to Adam for joining me and being so generous with his time. He wasn't directly promoting anything, but you can watch Adam's shows on the History Channel and obviously catch all the reruns of Man Vs Food and also check out his cookery book, Straight Up Tasty. If you've been affected by anything we discussed in our chat, there are free services that can help. You can contact Rape Crisis in the UK or if you're in the US, Reigns National Sexual Assault Hotline. There's more details in the show notes. Hope you enjoyed this episode of Celebrity Catch-Up. As I always say, I know there's lots of podcasts to choose from, so thank you so much for choosing this one. If you'd like to support the show, please visit celebritycatchup.com where you can donate. But the biggest way you can help is by just not keeping the podcast to yourself. Please share it with a friend or on social media so that others can discover and enjoy it too. Hit that follow button on your podcast player, Twitter or Instagram. Leave a rating or a nice review. All that stuff massively helps me out and keeps the podcast going. Until next time, thanks for listening.